Howdy. I don't know why, I just felt like saying howdy tonight. Would you turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning in verse 22. That's where we left off last week, so that's where we pick up this week. Deuteronomy chapter 14, beginning with verse 22. Before we pray and start our study tonight, uh, the standard fare of announcements. No, there's not a standard fare. There's more than one announcement. Um, next Sunday, Hank Hanegraaff will be with you. He'll be here in the morning. He'll be here in the evening. And it's great because his book was released, will be released in two days, his new book. And so by the time he gets here, he'll have plenty of them to go around. We sort of worked it out that way and rescheduled. He was going to be here a few weeks back. And I was coming home from India, and I said, I'll trade you. Uh, let me come and do the Sunday, and then I'll be in Florida this week. So um, you come out and do uh, the Sunday. So he'll be here for three services in the morning and Sunday night. And it always proves to be exciting when Hank's around. Uh, he stirs things up, but uh, always is exciting to have him. Uh, he's a scholar. He's a man of God, and he's a man who will speak the truth no matter what people think of him. It's interesting, he doesn't really care if people like him or don't like him. He cares if God approves of him. That's really where he lives, in the fear of the Lord, not in the fear of man. And that's always a great place to live. So uh, come out and hear Hank uh, this Sunday. Then the week after, of course, is uh, Easter week, Resurrection week, Resurrection celebration. Uh, we plan to have three services on Easter morning. Uh, e Sunday evening service will be canceled, but... We will have a 7 o'clock service um, over in um, the um, football, Lobo Stadium, football field, 7 in the morning. And the reason that's good is because, again, the time change will not have occurred, uh, which so often happens, so it's, you know, uh, cold and dark in the morning, and then the sun comes up. We'll start at 7. The sun will be bright uh, even before we start, and so it should be a warmer. Uh, won't say warm, but warmer than usual. And then after that service, we have our two other services, 9.30 and 11.15 here uh, in the church building. Uh, the first, no, is it, which service is live? I think it's the last one. The 11.15 service will be broadcast not only live on the radio, but live on television as well. So uh, the reason we did that is because Already, without Easter, uh, it is crazy just to get in here Sunday mornings. Just to find a seat is tough uh, at any of the services. But the second and third, there's people standing all around and people on the floor and overflowing the overflow. And so we thought if we could add, besides the radio, some television just to uh, serve the people a little bit better in that regard, we do it. Uh, so that's coming up. Then um, on Friday before Easter, Good Friday, we have... A, a service here during the day uh, in the sanctuary. So we'll make a, we'll keep you updated on those as the time comes and make the announcement again next week. Okay, Deuteronomy chapter 14. And the last announcement before we pray is, let me just put it this way, stay seated. That's it. That's the announcement. Throughout the remainder of the service. Uh, we make that announcement every time we have a meeting because we, we feel it is your prerogative to come. Of course, you make the choice to come or to leave. 
We ask you, if you're going to leave, that you make the choice to leave now rather than in the middle of the service. You say, why? Because it's rude if you leave in the middle of the service because it distracts people who are listening to the word being taught. And it could be, and it often is the case, where the Lord is speaking to an individual. And you decide, well, I'm going to leave or I'm going to go sit somewhere else or I'm going to get up and go, go to the restroom. Distracts people. And, uh, you know, one of these days, I'm uh, going to bring out the storybook of the people that decide to leave uh, and tell, and just it, if the ushers had their day here to be able to say what people say to them when they say, please, now we ask you to stay seated and please don't go back into the sanctuary once you've left. The words that have come out of people's mouths, just flat out cussing them up one side and down the other, right in the foyer, you know, and uh, <laughs> praise the Lord. I, what do you say to something like that? So uh, we, don't, um, we don't try to cajole people into coming or uh, uh, beg them to come, uh, but we ask them nicely to make the decision. If you're going to come to church, stay for the service. If you're not, then make that decision, and at the beginning, go to the very back. In the foyer, there's television screens. You could watch it by television, and then you could leave whenever you'd like or you could get up as many times as you'd like and go to the restroom as many times as you'd like. Not a problem. Unless it's an emergency, of course, we'd understand that, that we ask you to stay seated. All right. Let me also say as we start tonight, I love those who love God's Word. I love the Sunday night group. Not that I hate the Sunday morning group. I, I love them, but I, I love the Sunday night group because you are hungry to get into the Word, not just to spend a, a time going over a section, but to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter. And uh, I, I watch you. I sit up here and watch some of you taking notes and writing them down and no doubt going over them later. And uh, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. So I can't wait to see what God's going to do in your life because of your hunger for His Word. So let's pray and we'll start. Father, thank you this evening for the tremendous privilege that we have of living in a country where the Bible is so readily accessible, where most people can own one or two or three, where there is Christian media and there are churches that abound that love you and teach your word and fellowship in the spirit. We thank you for that, Lord. It is our privilege indeed to be here tonight as we're in fellowship with one another. We share a common bond and that is, we're all sinners saved by your grace. We rejoice in that, and we seek to learn more and more about who you are and who we are in relationship to you. It is not a religion. We're so thankful that you didn't give to mankind a religion, but you gave your Son that we might know him, that we might walk with him. And because he lives, we can live too as we just sang, He is our peace. So, Lord, we seek tonight to build upon what you've already given to us, that we might know your relationship with your people, even in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. Help us to know our foundations. In Jesus' name, amen. We begin tonight in chapter 14 of Deuteronomy, verse 22. And, you know, by the way, some preachers preach, you would think that this is the only verse they know. 
This is the only verse that they've committed to memory because it's harped on all the time in many church services. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. Giving is a biblical principle. There's no two ways about that. God doesn't own 10%. He owns 100%. He owns you. He lets you get by with giving him 10%. Uh, but God owns the rest of it. The 10% is to serve a purpose to keep the Levites going, and it was to keep the poor and the needy maintained, to keep the services of the tabernacle and the temple up to speed. But all that we have belongs to God. Yet, as much as that is true, I have often been accused of not preaching enough on tithing. And I stand guilty gladly. There's a reason for that. I'm a biblical expositor. That is, I like to take a book and go through it and deal with it paragraphically and homiletically and practically. And yet I like to do things in context. Rather than waking up Sunday morning and think, you know, I think today I'm going to talk about tithing. Or, you know, today I think I'm going to talk about the family. I like to talk about what God talks about in his context with the frequency with which God deals with it. So if you teach through the Bible, you're going to teach absolutely every subject that is important to God. You'll deal with it in its context. You'll deal with it the way God deals with it. So when God talks about tithing, we'll talk about tithing. When God talks about the family, we'll talk about the family. When God talks about whatever God talks about, that's how we'll do it. Then there's not an undue emphasis, and when you teach that way, the preacher can't ride a hobby horse, some little pet thing that's just always on his heart, always on his mind. He's got to get it out every time he talks. It's best to just let the Bible be the guide. Let God emphasize what he has emphasized. So let it be written, so let it be done. When we first started our fellowship here in Albuquerque, I I came into a town from California. I came into this town, and I just had my ears opened. I listened. I listened to what people were saying about church, what they were saying about God, what they were saying about ministries. And I soon discovered that Being strategically located at the crossroads of America, I-25 and I-40, everybody and his brother and their pet blew through town in the name of the Lord and set up a crusade or an evangelistic campaign or a special service. And all of them asked for money. There's nothing wrong with supporting God's work. I'm all in favor of it. But I'd listen to people and I'd say, man, you know, I'd listen to unbelievers especially. And usually their beef was, you know, the one thing I hate about church, the one thing I hate about listening to Christian radio or Christian television, they're always asking for money. The impression that it leaves with the unbeliever is that God is broke and that we support God rather than God owns everything and God is the provider. And he supports us. The message that the clergy 
the evangelist, the media was giving to people is God can't make it without you. Poor God. God's in the poorhouse. Would you please bail him out this week? Would you please make sure that his work is ongoing? God can't make it without you. So people thought, hey, God's on welfare. <laughs> and I resented the fact that people had a misjudgment about the God of the Bible. One uh, family from our church told me of an evangelist that will be unnamed. Not that all of you have heard of him, but some of you have. And he would come through town and he would take his offerings in um, trash cans. You know, he, not Colonel Sanders, buckets, trash cans. He, he wanted them filled. And he told people that. We're going to take an offering. I want these cans filled. And he'd harp about the offering and rant and rave on the platform. And this family at least had enough discernment to say, this guy is whack hammer. And they got up and they, they were in the back and they, they just couldn't stand the fact that they, this guy was misrepresenting God and they walked out. And this guy yelled out after them. He said, you wouldn't leave a fine restaurant without paying, would you? And had they thought, they would have said, well, I haven't been fed yet. But, you know, why, why be recalcitrant? Why, you know, why, why not just vote with your feet? So they left. And I heard those kinds of stories, and so I thought, you know what? We, I don't want to do that. Again, taking an offering, nothing wrong with it. Tithe is a biblical mandate in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, it's far above and beyond the tithe, but that was the minimum and the church that I come from in California, and most every church takes an offering. That's, there's nothing wrong with that, and a church should never feel ashamed to take up an offering. It's biblical. It's scriptural. But because of the emphasis that so many placed on it, I decided, you know what? I don't want to do that. We had our Thursday night Bible study at the lakes. People would come and say, we want to give. How, you never take an offering. I said, well, you know, we don't have anything to give to. We don't have a way to... Uh, keep a record of the funds to distribute the funds. Don't worry about it. I just said, look, my friend and I will pay for the rent of this facility and for the coffee. Don't even sweat it. It's our gift. But more people and more people started asking. So eventually we put up a little Folgers coffee can. And we took and cut a little hole in the lid and stuck it over by the coffee jar, or by the coffee carrot, so that, you know, people would say, Hey, I'm going to pay for the coffee at least. So they put in a buck or two or whatever. When we moved to a Sunday morning format over here at the theater, which is now a bookstore not far from here, we were asked the question, what are you going to do about taking an offering? You know, and, and some of the leaders were asking me, are we going to take an offering now on our first Sunday? So I thought about it. And I got together with our small board of directors, and, and they said, you know, it would be a lot easier if we took an offering. And I thought about it. I said, no, you know, we, we sort of set a precedent, and, and uh, God has been faithful. Let's just, let's just test the Lord in this. You know, it, it's worked so far. 
He said, yeah, but th this is a bigger group. This is the theater now. It sits 250. The other thing sat 70. This will sit 250. How, how do we do it? I said, well, get two coffee cans. One at one side, one on the other. We'll get more. So we did. And I love telling the story. I told it this week in North Carolina to one of the board members who's a lawyer at a, at a large church struggling for finances in Charlotte, North Carolina. And he keeps it, he hears, he goes, tell me that story again. How does that work? <laughs> and then when we moved into our first building, again, the leader said, no, I think we had to take an offering. I said, no, this time make boxes. We'll call them agape boxes. It'll be like the boxes in the temple that were shaped like trumpets in the court of the women. And we'll just put a few of them in the church. And as people feel led of the Lord, they can give. We can make mention of them, but we don't even have to take up a formal offering. We can save that time and teach the word in it and worship. And so that's been our precedent. Because we never wanted to be accused of, you're just like the other radio or television or other church ministries, always asking for money. Wanted to be free of that kind of a, an accusation. In fact, I've told people before, if you've given and you felt like it was out of, you know, gosh, they pressure me and I shouldn't have given, you know, I, I could have bought that cool tape deck this week if I wouldn't have given that money that I gave to the church, come see us. We'll give you a refund because God doesn't need it if you give out of an impure motivation. Giving should be freely from the heart. Now, the tithe was commanded in the Old Testament. It belonged to the Lord. It was taken off the top immediately. There was the tithe of the grain. There was the tithe that was given every two years to support the Levites. And then every third year, there was another tithe to support the poor of the land. There were actually three tithes. It wasn't 10%. Some scholars feel it was up to 30% of people's income. In the New Testament, Paul said that we should not give out of constraint. God loves a cheerful giver. Give as you purpose in your heart. People come to me and say, and ask me, how much should I give? I said, don't ask me. I'm not God. What do you purpose in your heart? You what? I don't want to give anything. Okay, if that's what you purpose in your heart, then that's what you should give. R.G. Letourneau, who started that big earth-moving equipment business, you see them right across the street, some of those big pieces of equipment, he, he invented the whole idea of big, uh, tired, engined, earth-moving equipment. R.G. Letourneau was a believer. He was a Christian. He said, Lord, I pray that you'd prosper me in my business. I pray you'd bless me financially so much that I could give the money that you give to me back to you for your work. He started in a business venture, and started giving 10% of his income. As God continued to bless his work, he was a brilliant entrepreneur. He started giving 15 and 20%. At the end of his life, he was making so much money, he gave 90% of everything he made to God's work and kept 10%. He turned the tables completely and just gave it all away. And still, with the 10%, he made so much. He just wanted to see God's work further. That's what he purposed in his heart. And so Paul said, God loves a cheerful giver. 
In Greek, the word is hilarious. I love that. That's how you ought to give, hilariously. Lord, here's your money. <laughs> Use it, Lord. Tithing was never to be seen as a burden, but as an expression of love, as an expression of service, and as an expression of confidence. In other words, I trust that though I'm giving this away, God will add, God will provide, God will make sure that my bills are paid. And sometimes it is that step of faith. I've had people come to me and say, I can't afford to give. And I'm not going to pressure them. I'll tell you what, though, I can't afford not to. Jesus promised, give and it will be given to you. Pressed down, shaken together, overflowing, will men give into your bosom. In fact, it was the only time God said, test me. The only time God said, I dare you, prove me in this. It was with tithes and offerings. In Malachi 3, he asked the question, will a man rob God? Yet you, O Israel, have robbed me. In what have we robbed you, they said? In tithes and offerings, said the Lord. And then he said, now prove me, test me in this. And see, if when you give, I will not open the storehouses of heaven and pour out upon you a blessing that you won't even be able to contain. And so God said that he would, God will never be your debtor. You can't outgive God in anything, in time, in talent, in money. God will always bless. God will always take care. You shall truly tithe all of the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year, and you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide, the tithe of your grain and of your new wine, of your oil, of the firstlings of your herds, your flocks, that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. Now this is the festival tithe. This is the tithe that they ate before the Lord. It was something that uh, they weren't to sell or make profit on. It, it was something that was consumed in, in a very festive manner and in a celebratory manner. They were to rejoice. And they were to do it at a specific place. They weren't to go in the backyard and open the barbecue and invite a few friends. They were to go to the place where the tabernacle was erected, which was at Shiloh and later on in Jerusalem. And then the temple was built in Jerusalem. And so people would converge upon the city of Jerusalem for these feasts. And they would celebrate. Now, at the same time, God knew that for some people, Jerusalem was far away. Today, you can get on an airplane and be there in 24 hours. If you live in Israel, you can be there in a few hours by car. But back then, you had to walk. Moreover, you had to go by caravan because you had to take this produce to Jerusalem. And it took several days. There's a problem with that. For some, it was just too long of a journey. They were feeble. For others, because it was grain and some of them, was, it was fruits and vegetables, perishable items, by the time they got to Jerusalem, the things would be rotten. So God has another plan. Verse 24, if the journey is too long for you so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. And take the money in your hand. Go to the place 
which the Lord your God chooses. And you, notice this, you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires. For oxen, for sheep, for wine, or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God, and you shall rejoice. It's a command. Be happy. I'm struck by that in Deuteronomy. Over and over, God gives the command through Moses to his people to rejoice whenever they worship him. Oh, but church is to be solemn. Never smile, never laugh. How boring. Rejoice in the Lord. You ought to be the most joyful people in this city. You've got everything to rejoice over. You've got every reason for joy. And the worship was to be filled with joy and rejoicing. To be happy. You shall not forsake the Levite who is within your gates, for he has no part nor inheritance with you. At the end of every third year, you shall bring out the tithe of your produce of that year and store it up within your gates. And the Levite, because he has no portion or inheritance with you, and the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates may come and eat and be satisfied that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Proverbs 19 says, He who has pity on the poor lends to the Lord. And that you're not to mock the poor, because if you mock the poor, you're mocking God, and God will take it personally and take up the cause of the poor and get after you. So God's people are to be concerned about the poor. Remember Paul when he wrote to Galatians and he said, I was checking in with the church of Jerusalem and I wanted to go out and preach the gospel. And they said, go for it. I'm paraphrasing it. Go for it, Paul, but whatever you do, don't forget the poor. Which very thing I was very eager to do, to care for the poor. It is a mandate of God's people to take care especially of their own. Israel was to take care of their own. If somebody was in their gates, even if they were a foreigner, but they came in the refuge of their community, they were to be taken care of. And that's why we ask, hey, you got a box of cereal or a box of flour or canned goods? Bring it to the church. Put it in some of, not the agape boxes, but some of the, the big, huge boxes. You wouldn't fit it in the slot. The uh, big boxes that we have, and we have a huge pantry over here on the west side. We've devoted a whole area of the church to a food pantry. In fact, uh, Paul from McDonald's gave us this huge walk-in refrigerator and freezer. And I saw that. I walked through a store and he goes, yeah, I'm going to get rid of it and give it to this guy or sell it to this guy. And I said, I'll take it. I'll be a scavenger for God in this. If you're going to get rid of it, we can use it for our uh, outreach to the poor. He said, take it. So we set it up and now we can store perishable items, meat and so forth. And people can come during the week to the church. They say, I don't have groceries. I need something. Come on in. We'd love to help you out. And then we're going to set it up downtown every week so people can come downtown as well. There'll be two locations they can come to to get food and to be taken care of. And listen, God has just set us up with an organization. We'll be able to give, we'll be able to give out more than, uh, uh, well, we'll take in more than probably we, we'll give out. We just hope that there'll be 
that many people that can use it with all the stuff we're going to be able to take in and uh, get it out to people. So uh, they were to do that within their own gates, that they may come and eat and be satisfied. And notice this, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hand which you do. Again, God is saying, you'll never be able to outgive me. I'll provide for you. Trust me, give this tithe. Take care of the Levite who works in the tabernacle. Take care of the poor and the fatherless. I'll bless you. I'll take care of you. Sort of what Jesus said, if you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, what God wants you to do, all these things will be added unto you. Say, oh, I don't know, that's scary. Try it. You want an adventure? Try it. At the end of every seven years, chapter 15, verse 1, you shall grant a release of debts. Now this is wild. This is pretty awesome. The longest mortgage you could have in Israel was seven years. And there was no, no foreclosure. If you were unable to pay off your debt in seven years, at the end of seven years, the debt was to be removed completely. In fact, if you had land that you had to get rid of so you could pay off your debts, on the 50th year, the seventh marking of the seven-year periods, 49 plus 1, 50, the Jubilee year, all of the land would revert back to its original family owner. You cancel the debts every seven years. Now, this brought equity. This brought one-seventh of the time the rich and the poor, the landowner and the homeless, and put them on the same level for a seventh of the time. It wasn't a welfare state. It wasn't just a handout. It was for those who could not pay back their debt to, for a period of time, put things on an even footing. And then business would go on as usual the next set of seven years. It was an equalizer of wealth. And this is the form of the release. Every creditor who has lent anything to his neighbor shall release it. He shall not require it of his neighbor or his brother because it is called the Lord's release. Of a foreigner you may require it, but your hand shall release what is owned by your brother. They were to make a distinction between their Hebrew brethren and those who were not their Hebrews. Uh, not their Hebrews, who were not their, their brothers, not under the covenant of God. Now, even Jesus talked about loving our brother, and he said, by this shall all men know that you're my disciples, by the love you have one for another. Paul talked about doing good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith, and so we're to take care of our own especially, so of a foreigner, you can require it, uh, but your hand shall release what is owned by your brother, except when there may be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance only if you carefully obey the voice of the Lord your God, to observe with care all these commandments which I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you just as he promised you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall reign over many nations, but they shall not reign over you. Interesting. 
you will lend. I have found it fascinating to look at history, history of the Jewish people, and just see how God has given them a unique, I think, a unique and God-given knack with finances. Now it's become a pun, it's become a, a joke and almost a point of derision, but it's true. Some of the greatest bankers and financiers in the world have been Jewish. They, you know, look at the, how the Rothschilds have influenced uh, the world, and so many have been able to lend. It's interesting, too, just to study of all the nations in the Middle East, how prosperous Israel is. How that Jewish people from all over the world have contributed to that nation, from America, from Europe, and poured money into that country. And how that country has just, you know, been a source of blessing even to the rest of the world. God has put his unique hand upon them. But uh, before we go on, and well, let's go on. Let's just do that. You know, I, we, uh, let's go on. <laughs> if there is among you a poor man of your brethren within any of your gates, in your land which the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart, nor shut your hand from your poor brother, but you shall open your hand wide to him and willingly lend him sufficient for his need, whatever he needs. Beware, lest there be a wicked thought in your heart. Boy, does God know us or what? It's not just thou shalt, thou shalt not, but he says, now I know what you could be thinking. Lest there be a wicked thought in your heart saying, the seventh year, the year of release is at hand, and your eye be evil against your poor brother, and you give him nothing. And he cry out to the Lord against you, and it becomes sin among you. You shall surely give to him, and your heart should not be grieved when you give to him, because for this thing the Lord your God will bless you in all the work, in all your work, and in all to which you put your hand. For the poor will never cease from your land, therefore I command you, saying, you shall open your hand wide to your brother, to your poor, and to your needy in your land. There would be that temptation. You got a poor brother in the land, a neighbor. You know, it's the sixth and a half year. He says, man, I really need some money. You're thinking, you know what? He can suffer for six months. Because I know if I lend him this money, in six months, at the seventh year, at the end of this thing, all the, I have to release the debt. And you'd be tempted to say, hey, man, just trust God. I am trusting God. That's why I've come to you. No. And the motivation for the no could be you don't want to release the money and give it freely. You might just have to give it completely away. Now, this happened every seven years. Six years Business as usual. At the seventh year, there was a release of the debt. Interesting in the Bible how there is a pattern of six and one, six and one. There's a rest. There's a number of rests. There's a number of Sabbaths. I find it actually quite amusing to speak to those people who say that Christians ought to keep the Sabbath. Worship on Saturday, the Seventh-day Adventists, some of the Seventh-day Baptists. And there's some groups who are very, very... Uh, pedantic and legalistic about this and, and uh, they will say you got to keep the Sabbath 
And I love sort of to play along with the argument. Really? We should keep this? Yes. I'll ask them, do you keep it? Oh, yes. Every Saturday. Every what? There's not only a weekly Sabbath. There's a Sabbath every seventh year. What that means is if you own something, if you owned a business, if you own land, on the seventh year, you were to let that land lay fallow, rest it not have any organized labor at all for a year. You want a Sabbath? Fine. Every seven years, do nothing. Now, you know, frankly, that sounds pretty good. That's what a sabbatical means. Take a year off every seven years. Whatever would grow freely of itself, spontaneously you could go out to the field and pick for yourself. Also the poor of the land, the homeless could... Find a field and go out anytime for that matter, but especially in that seventh year, you know, it's just it, you're not harvesting, you're, you're not organizing any labor force to go out and get the grapes, the crops. They just go out and pick them. Now, Israel failed to do this, failed to keep the rest, failed to keep this year of release. And they did this, they sinned for a period of 490 years or 70 sets of Sabbaths they desecrated. They didn't release the dead. They didn't let the land lay fallow. So for 70 Sabbath years, total of 490 years, they sinned. God's response to their sin was to send them to Babylon in captivity for 70 years because they owed God 70 years. And for 70 years, it says in the end of Chronicles, God let that land that they disobeyed him in, lay fallow and have its Sabbath rests. So you really want to keep the Sabbath like that, huh? Have fun. Now, verse 11, perhaps you already had a little red light go off when I read it. For the poor, well, let's go back to verse 4. Except when there be no poor among you, for the Lord will greatly bless you in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. Now, verse 11. For the poor will never cease from the land, therefore I command you, saying. You say, there's a contradiction. I see a contradiction. No, you don't. You think God would be that lame to, in a couple paragraphs, say something that would be a contradiction? You think Moses would... You know, uh, in writing that, not have said, no, wait a minute, God, you just said something, and now you said the opposite. In verse 4, God is talking here about the release of the seventh year. And the idea is that uh, you should release people's debt so that no one remains in a continual condition of being poor. You release their debt every seven years. If you do that, no one in your land will permanently be poor. That's what that means. Now, in verse 11, he's saying the poor generally you will never, will never cease from your land. Now, that's one way to interpret that. The other way to look at that is God is saying, if you obey me, you'll never have poor in the land. And then God says, but you're always going to have poor in the land because I know your heart. I know you're not going to completely obey me. The poor you will always have in your land. Knowing their hearts, knowing their future, God could say this. That's another way to look at it. Of course, Jesus said the same thing in John chapter 12, right? Remember Judas? He complained because he thought that this woman was being very extravagant with a gift that she was using on Jesus. And Judas said, you know, 
That money could have been taken and given to the poor. Jesus said, leave her alone. The poor you will always have with you, but me you will not always have. Really reiterating and recapping this very verse. Now the law concerning bond servants. This is a really great, great portion of scripture and there's many lessons for us. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you as, and serves you six years, then in the seventh year, you shall let him go free from you. When you send him away free from you, you shall not let him go away empty-handed. You shall supply him liberally from your flock, from your threshing floor, from your wine press. From what the Lord has blessed you with, you shall give to him. The contract for the servant was this period of seven years. The seventh year was the year of release. You'd go free or serve you for six, and then you'd be released on the seventh. Now, people went into slavery because they needed to pay off their debts. They sold themselves to a master, and they worked for that guy in order to pay off a debt that they owed. Maybe they were just, you know, they didn't have credit cards to mess their lives up with, so they, they'd mess it up in other ways. And they get to a point where they had nothing left but themselves, their own work, their labor. So they would sell themselves into slavery. This wasn't because they wanted to. This was because they had to. Now, it could be that after working for a guy for a period of time, you thought, you know, I like him. He's fair. He's honest. He treats me kindly. And I've got a good setup. Chances are, if I leave him and go out and start something and blow it again, I might get a, a horrible master. I'd like to perpetually be his servant. You could become what was called a bond slave. You'd enter into a contract agreement with him. You'd say to him, I like you so much, I want you to be my boss forever. That's being a bond slave. The first form of slavery is because you have to the second is because you want to out of love, not out of poverty, but out of love. Let's see what happens. Verse 15, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this thing today. And if it happens that he says to you, I will not go away from you because he loves you and your house since he prospers with you. Then you shall take an awl, which is the sharp nail-like instrument, and thrust it through his ear to the door. You say, that's horrible. <laughs> oh, come on. How many of you have earrings tonight? Some of you have already done this. Maybe not with an awl, but you've done it with some sharp instrument to put a piercing in your ear, to put a hole through your ear so that you could wear an earring, guys and gals. So, you know, don't be so taken aback by this. You're to do this in the ear at the door, and he shall be your servant forever. Also, to your maidservant, you shall do likewise. It shall not seem hard to you when you send him away free from you, for he's been worth a doubled hired servant in serving you six years, and the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So, you say, you know what, I, I, want, I want to serve you forever. You put a hole through the ear and then they would usually put in something to keep that hole open, like an earring. The ear was opened, 
And so they would wear the earring symbolizing, I'm a servant of this master. Just like a wedding ring says, I'm married to this person. The earring would say, I'm a servant of this master. By the way, that is what David meant in the Psalms when he cried out to God and he said, O Lord, open thou mine ear. He didn't say, I'm deaf, what would you say? It meant, Lord, I'm your servant, your willing bondservant. Put a hole in my ear. I'll serve you forever. I'll willingly serve you. Open my ear. It was to run it through with an all figuratively. By the way, this is our relationship to Jesus Christ, is it not? We're debtors because of our sin. We're poor in spirit at first. He saves us willingly, and then we become willing bond servants. Oh, Lord, just use me in whatever capacity. Have you done that yet to God? Have you come, have you grown in grace to the extent where you said, absolutely, whatever you want from my life, that's what I want from my life. I want to be your servant forever. When you tell me to go to a place, to a country, to a city, I want to go. I'm your servant. You never know where God might take you. But it's an exciting life to be his bondservant. And it's something that must be done willingly. By the way, this is also a picture of Jesus Christ, right? He wasn't forced to come into the earth. It says in Philippians chapter 2, he emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a servant and went to the most shameful death, the death of the cross. And just as a servant in those days bore a mark on his body that he was a servant, Jesus bore marks on his body in terms of nail prints in his hands, feet, crown of thorns on his head, spear in his side. He bore the marks, and I think he still bear the, bears the marks now of a willing servant of God by the crucifixion. For John in heaven sees the vision of the glorified Christ as a lamb that had been slain, bearing the evidence of being a servant to the point of death. Verse 19, all the firstborn males that come from your herd. Now, by, beginning in verse 19 through chapter 16, there's, God is giving brief regulations on functions that he wants them to do. He's basically saying, I've got this place. It's a special place to me. It's the place that I've chosen to put my name in over all the places on the earth. It became Jerusalem eventually. And at that place, I want you to do certain things there. Beginning in this verse, he tells what things he wants done in that place. All your firstborn males that come from your herd, from your flock, shall you sanctify to the Lord your God. You shall do no work with the firstborn of your herd, nor shear the firstborn of your flock. You and your household shall eat it before the Lord your God year by year in the place which the Lord your God chooses. So the owner could receive no benefit. You couldn't shear the sheep. You couldn't use the oxen to plow your fields. The firstborn was set apart. Why? What was so special about the firstborn? It was a reminder. In Egypt, God protected and saved their firstborn in the tenth plague of Egypt, the last plague, by having the death angel pass over their houses, saving the firstborn of Israel. God destroyed the firstborn of the Egyptians. And so now God claims the firstborn. It's a reminder. The first, the best, belong to me. It can have no defect. It can have no blemish. The first and the best belong to the Lord. Notice how God puts it. Verse, 5, verse 21. If there's any defect in it, 
If it's lame or blind or has a serious defect, you shall not sacrifice that to the Lord your God. God knows his people. He really does. He knows us. He knows that we love the path of least resistance and the path of most profit. He knows that we would be tempted to say, okay, I've got to give a lamb to God. Well, you know, I've got this one that has a birth defect and a broken leg. I could never use it. It would never be profitable for me. won't even make a good pet. I'll give it to God. How much different is that from, boy, these things are all beat up and worn out. Can't use them anymore. I guess I'll, I'll give it to the church. God can have it now that I've used and had the best use out of it. Now God says, I want the best. No defect, no blemish, no spot. No cast off. Our service should be the best to God. The songs that we sing, how I thank God for our worship group. You know, they, they rehearse and they listen to the harmonies and they get the little musical parts and the little da-da-da-da-da and the guitar and the boom on the drums and all the little parts. They work so hard because it's, it's to God. It's to be the best. Not to bring a sacrifice to God and just slap it on the altar. Here's your sacrifice, God. See ya. It's to be meaningful. Give him the best of your time, the best of your effort, the best of your labor. Say, yeah, but I'm just so tired, I just can't. Rearrange your life then a little bit. Set some priorities. Make some choices. Do something radical, maybe. See what God does. Verse 22, you may eat it within your gates. The unclean and the clean person alike may eat it as if it were a gazelle or a deer, only you shall not eat its blood. And we covered that already. You shall pour it on the ground like water. Now, God is going to talk about the feasts of Israel, and we're going to touch on them. We've spoken about them already in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus, and in Leviticus, and in Numbers, and we get to them again. But, you know, I have a hunch that not all of you were here for Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers. So it's a good thing that there is the repetition of the law in Deuteronomy so that we can go through it. The observations are given. The Feast of the Lord, uh, Passover in verses uh, 1 through 8, uh, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost in verses 9 through 12, and beginning in verse 13 through verse 17, the Feast of Tabernacles is reviewed. Now let me say this. There were a lot of different feasts, not just these, lots of them, but there were three feasts that were called pilgrimage feasts. You know why? Because you had to make a pilgrimage. Very good. You had to leave wherever you lived, and you had to go to Jerusalem. This feast, you had to pack up the camel and, you know, get the family aboard and gas it up and take it down to Jerusalem. And You had to make the effort to be away from your home. You had to set up the business so that you could be gone from your neighbors. You had to do it in Jerusalem. These three feasts, especially the men, were required to go to Jerusalem if they were in a certain proximity. Again, there is this mandate to have a feast and a mandate to rejoice in the Lord your God. God is saying, I'm going to command you to have a feast. I'm going to command you to have a celebration here. So many of our forms of worship, you know, we can take the joy out of it. You know, I'll tell you what, I think of Christmas. Our society has done more to destroy Christmas I can prove it. 
Come November, just start looking at the, the stress on people's faces. They have everything but rejoicing going on. Go in the malls. The only pseudo-rejoicing the world has at Christmas is when they're loaded. And they're forgetting about all the reality of what they have to pay off come January. More and more, I'm kind of... I don't like what we've done to Christmas. People are, feel compelled. I've got to get those cards out. I've got to get those gifts. And you make the list, and you check it twice, and you go out and get it, and did I forget anybody? And oh, will they be mad if I forgot them? And Man. Why? How about, just send them a note. I'm, I love you. C call them up. I'm praying for you. I'll be praying for you this week. That's a great gift. I understand your kids, you know, want stuff, and, but, you know, I, I even think of, Chris, after looking at all the Christmas cards I got this year, and a lot of them, I, I even looked at how many were the same card, you know, the, they were, they obviously got them at the same store, and, you know, there's 5, 10, 20 of them the same card, and it's nice, it's wonderful, you know, words and so forth, but I'm even thinking of breaking the whole tradition and not even sending Christmas cards. I thought, how about Easter cards? The resurrection. Nobody expects that. You know, everybody expects, oh, Christmas card from 50 relatives today. Great. How many tomorrow? Oh, 30. Hey, great. And you string them up. But you get one at Easter time, nobody would expect it. It could be very meaningful. Or, or Thanksgiving rather than Christmas. So I'm just, I've been rethinking this whole Christmas stress thing and thinking, you know, all, you can go to the printer and get stuff printed around that time. You're not in line. Nobody's at Easter or Thanksgiving getting a card done. So my wife and I, we usually go shopping for Christmas, not at Christmas, but in January, February, and through the summer. We see something, it's on sale, we get it for somebody. You know, listen, by October, November, there's not anything that we have to buy for or anyone. No stress, just can enter in and rejoice. It's Jesus' birthday. What are we going to give him? Okay. Rejoice. Three pilgrim feasts. First of all, Passover. Observe in the month of Abib, that's the first month, also called Nisan, not after the um, truck, but it was just called that. Keep the Passover to the Lord your God, for in the month of Abib, the Lord your God brought you out of Egypt by night. Therefore, you shall sacrifice the Passover to the Lord your God from the flock, from the herd, and the place where the Lord chooses to put his name. We're only going to make it to verse 8 tonight of this chapter, so we'll talk about Passover and close. You shall eat no leavened bread with it. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread with it, that is, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste and hurry, which you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life. And no leaven shall be seen among you in all your territory for seven days, nor shall any of the meat which you sacrificed the first day at twilight remain overnight until morning. Passover was the deliverance. It is, it's the great event that they retell year after year. It's the big E of the Jewish calendar. It celebrates the deliverance from the 10th plague. God wiped out the firstborn. God took us out of Egypt. We're free. We're not slaves anymore. In fact, today, it's the one feast 
that more Jews celebrate than any other feast in Israel. 92% of all the Jews in Israel keep some sort of Passover Seder every year in Israel. 88% every year eat kosher foods and will not eat the forbidden foods during Passover. Now, that, that's high compared to 44% who keep kosher most of the rest of the year. But it, it, it doubles, 88% during Passover time. Try to get a hotel room anywhere near Israel at Passover. Good luck. They're all booked up. Jews come from all over the world to celebrate Passover in Israel. One time I was there for Passover, and it was only because I was living in the country at that time and lived on a kibbutz, and it was exciting to see the, the excitement that they had to celebrate uh, Passover. Again, this is one of the feasts that you had to come to Jerusalem for. Uh, the minimum was one lamb sacrificed for uh, 10 people, and Josephus says that there were 256,000 lambs that were butchered one time for the Passover during one of the years he kept target of. So there was, uh, you know, a couple million people that celebrated it. Tacitus, the historian, says uh, that they counted one time over three million people that came to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem today, well, the, the, the population of Jerusalem then uh, was a few hundred thousand. So imagine what it would be like in Jerusalem when you have three million people. That's why people didn't stay in inns. You wouldn't want to stay in an inn back then anyway. They didn't have the Hyatt or the Holiday Inn. Uh, the inns weren't holidays anyway back then. They were just rough places. And so people would stay with strangers. People would open up their homes and knowing that foreigners would come in from out of town, hey, stay at our house. Here's a bed for you and we'll take care of you for this week. When the houses were taken, people would stay out on the Mount of Olives and out at Bethany and Bethagene and around the outskirts of the city, just sleep out under the stars. That's what Jesus would do with his disciples or he would stay a little bit further out at the house of Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Anyway, it was a packed place. People would come from all over. On the 10th of the month, the 10th of Abib, the 10th of Nisan, the lamb was selected. You brought it home. The 14th day of the month, you'd kill it, roast it, and eat it. Can you imagine how hard that would be? It'd be a lot easier to get the lamb on the 14th day and kill it the 14th day. But bringing a little lamb home, having it around the house for a few days, getting used to it. Oh, look at that cute little animal. The kids get attached to it. Then, to see the blood of that lamb shed, to see that lamb lose its life, and then to try to sit down and eat it. A reminder of the fact that something else has been substituted to take your sin away. An innocent victim. A vicarious atonement, the atonement made by blood, was the graphic reminder to the children of Israel. Now, we notice that they were to have no leaven in their bread. There were two feasts that constituted Passover season. There was the Passover feast formal that was called the Chag HaPesach. That's the Paschal Feast of the Lamb then there was the Chag Hamatzot, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, symbolizing the fact that they, with haste, with, uh, in a great hurry, had to leave Egypt on the way to the Promised Land through the wilderness. 
For seven days, there was to be no leaven. A search for leaven went on prior to this time. Usually at night, a candle was lit. You'd go through the house searching for leaven, opening up every cupboard, shaking every piece of clothing, taking every drawer, opening it up. Get rid of all the leaven, every crumb, every piece of bread. In fact, it was said that if a mouse ran across the house, the occupants of the house would, you know, get all upset because he might have a piece of leaven attached to him and bring a curse upon the house. It became ridiculous. It became so legalistic after a while. But the idea is remove the leaven from your land. So they would search for the chametz, the leaven. They would get rid of it. Leaven is a symbol of evil. It's a symbol of sin. Jesus used it in the parables as such. I think we've talked about that enough. But they would eat, no one, they, not leavened bread, but they would eat unleavened bread. And so at Passover, eat the matzah crackers. You don't eat wonder bread that's as spongy, but flat cracker, that's all you eat. And if you ever go to Israel and you're there that time, you can't get leavened bread. It ain't around. You have, you know, manashevitz usually uh, in, this, in this country, but there they, they bake it. Square, flat bread with holes in it. It's made a certain way because according to Jewish law, the process of kneading the dough to the time of baking uh, the completed act of kneading and baking it has to take no longer than 18 minutes because that's when fermentation begins to set in. So there's a, a very exact process to get leavened bread, and they, they still keep this to a T. So they were to take the lamb, sacrifice it at the Lord, place the Lord your God chooses. And verse 7, you shall roast and eat it in the place which the Lord your God chooses. In the morning you shall turn to go to your tent. Six days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the seventh day there shall be a sacred assembly to the Lord your God, and you shall do no work in it. Now that's Passover. This new generation that Moses was speaking to needed to hear of the Passover. Just like we need to always hear of our great Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, who was shed for us. He's the center of church. Jesus is the center attraction of every meeting. Jesus Christ is to be glorified in our midst. The church is to be centered on him. Everything else is peripheral. That's why we have communion often in remembrance of him, because it's that act of sacrifice upon the cross, his shed blood, that brings us salvation. Never get tired of hearing the old gospel message. Never get tired of hearing the blood of Jesus Christ can cleanse a person from all sin. And when somebody tries to be cute and clever and user-friendly, saying, well, that's outmoded, we know that people in the 90s don't take kindly to speaking about blood sacrifice. Do what Charles Spurgeon said about those preachers. Never go to hear them. There's no power in the gospel when you remove the sacrifice of Jesus Christ out of it. Let him be the center. That's why Peter called it the precious blood of a lamb without spot and without blemish. You were not redeemed, said Peter, with corruptible things like silver and gold and those things you received from tradition of your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot, 
a lamb without blemish, a perfect lamb substituted for you so that you might have everlasting life. And you don't have to bring the lamb once a year. You don't have to bring a little lamb home and coddle it and get to know it and have the kids pet it and then kill it and eat it. You can just apply the once and for all shedding of Christ's blood to your life. That's how we're saved. The Passover spoke of the ultimate Passover. That's why Jesus at the Passover with his disciples said, Take and eat. This is my body shed for you for the remission of sins. This is the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Do this often in remembrance of me. Father, we thank you for the memory we have of Jesus Christ. Right now, we just take a moment and we think back to the day, to the evening, to the night, when we finally surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ. When we finally said, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I want to be yours. I want you to save me. And I will follow you from now on every day of my life. We think back to that freedom we had our deliverance, our Passover. We had such difficulties, Lord, insurmountable odds, some of us, and you opened up the Red Sea. You brought us through the painful wilderness and you brought us into the promised land of a rich relationship with you. Oh, we're in awe, Lord, because of it. Lord, I pray that when we hear of your sacrifice on the cross, we would be moved to the core, that it would not be old, it would not be been there, done that, we would be always grateful, we would always rehearse it, and we would do often in remembrance of you those things that you commanded. Lord, in lieu of that, we think of those tonight who may be gathered in this building, who might be listening by radio, who have heard but have not responded, who have listened but have not surrendered, who know the facts of the gospel but don't know the peace of the one the gospel is written about. They've heard of the Lamb. They even believe in the Lamb, but His blood has not been applied to their lives. They've never asked you to forgive them, to be Lord and Savior of their life. And we pray that tonight you'd bring them to that choice, that place, that decision. Tonight, no matter who you are sitting in this place, I want you to just think about your life. Think about your choices. Think about where you are, where you've been. And then look into the future, where you're going. Can you honestly say that Jesus Christ has been personally invited by you to come and take control? Have you really received him? Have you ever come to a place where you've acknowledged him as your Lord and your Savior? besides just playing church or going along with the facts, have you really ever surrendered to him? Perhaps you haven't. In fact, perhaps you've come for that very reason tonight. You wanted the opportunity. You wanted somebody to invite you to know what it's like to have your sins forgiven. We have good news for you. You can know that absolutely tonight. You can have the guilt, the stain removed. You can have a brand new life a brand new start, absolute forgiveness as Jesus would pass over your sins because of his blood shed for you and give you everlasting life. If you're not sure that if you were to die that you'd be in the presence of God, then it's time to make that choice. 
because there's only two things that will last forever, the Word of God and a man's soul. They will live forever and ever. Have you made peace with God? If you haven't surrendered your life, and I'm going to ask you to do that tonight, I'm going to give you that opportunity. If you're ready to respond to the gospel, if you're ready to follow him, and I mean really follow him, to walk by faith with him, I want you to raise your hand up and say, Skip, I will make that choice tonight boldly. Raise your hand up and keep it up, and I'll acknowledge you, and I'll pray for you as we close the service. God bless you in the back, both of you. Anyone else over here to the left? Anyone else? Raise your hand up. Say, Skip, I'm ready to do it. Here's my hand. I acknowledge. I will acknowledge the Lord again in the back. Anyone else? Now is the time for you to respond. In the back over here. On the side. Yes, ma'am. Anybody else? God's poking at your heart. (laughs) Respond. He's doing it because he loves you. And Father, we pray for these who have their hands raised or who have raised them. We know that you know everything about them and that you're ready to forgive it all. You're ready to wipe that slate absolutely clean and purify them from all unrighteousness. And we pray, Lord, that as Jesus becomes the Lord and the Savior of their life tonight, you'd change them. You'd bring a deep-seated peace Take away the guilt. Restore them with forgiveness and mercy. Gently wash, Lord, all of the years and the pain that's there. Make them new as they become born again. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 In Jesus' name.